Well, how do you live in a world gone mad? For the past about 100 years, Christianity has been mocked and ridiculed intellectually. We still believe that God created all things, just like the Bible says. So we push back against, th- against things like the, the theories of evolution as a, a false theory for how everything came to be. But to the world, this makes us a, a dumb, foolish, ignorant, backwards people. So Christianity has been intellectually maligned for some time now. But in the past five to ten years, Christianity is now becoming villainized morally. At the very least, Christianity has always held a sort of moral high ground where society in general has recognized this. That throughout history, they've held to a basic Judeo-Christian set of values and morals. But that too is changing where the world, or to the world now, rather, we are the immoral ones. This is all a consequence of the never-ending sexual revolution. We still believe that God defines right and wrong. And accordingly, we believe that God designed marriage for one man and one woman, and that sex is a blessed gift within that marriage covenant only. But now that our culture has accepted so many forms of sexual morality, including sex outside of marriage, adultery, homosexuality, and transgenderism, now we are, once again, the backward ones, the intolerant ones, the ignorant ones. These vices are now virtues, and in redefining right and wrong, The world, in their mind, they've reclaimed a moral high ground. They believe they're fighting for tolerance, equality, and freedom. And so to them, it justifies, therefore, the hatred and the persecution of all who differ with this brand new sexual ethic of the past 10 years. So this is now becoming an upside-down world war. Right is wrong, black is white, good is bad. Ours is a postmodern culture that has rejected the truth. And ironically, they're now even rejecting science and actual biology. But if you don't get in line, you can expect consequences. In Ontario, Canada, legislation was proposed that would allow the government to forcibly remove children from families who refuse to accept the child's chosen gender identity. If a parent failed to recognize the child's gender self-identification, it's seen as a form of child abuse, and the children can be forcibly removed from the home and put in protection And the previous provision that the parents have the right to decide their children's upbringing, their education, their religious influence, that's been removed as well. Elsewhere in Sweden, a new book has come out aimed at preschoolers. It tells of a man who lives with his horse. The man is transgender, though. He wears women's clothing, wears lipstick. He comes home one day, though, to find that his horse is trans species. His horse believes he's a dog. So the man happily obliges and accepts that his horse is a dog and gets him a bone. This, to me, is the definition of a world gone mad. When a society forfeits the definition of marriage, the definition of life, the definition of gender, and the definition of right and wrong, it's just a matter of time before it devours itself and falls into chaos. And that's what we're witnessing more and more with each passing year. So what what does the Bible have to say about all this? Well, on the one hand, we we have no fear. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. We know that God is still on the throne, and in the end, he will right all wrongs. Christ will return, there will be a judgment, and the kingdom will come, and it will be on earth as it is in heaven. That's our confidence, our comfort, our hope. We I need not fear. But even if you already believe that, we still have an altogether separate question. 
Namely, how are we to live right now in such a world? How does God expect his people to navigate a culture that is embracing more and more darkness? How are we to live in a world gone mad? Well, you might be surprised to know that this was the exact situation facing Christians in the first century, in the early church. Things were uh, surprisingly similar. Intellectually, these brand new Christians were seen as backwards, believing that this dead Jewish carpenter was their Lord and Savior. I mean, like, like the God of the universe would really come to earth and live in poverty and die on a cross. Who would believe that? And then these new Christians had the audacity to, to claim that he rose from the dead. And so intellectually, Christians were ridiculed and, and mocked. And morally, these new Christians were on the outside as well. As they stood against the multifaceted sexual morality of the Roman Empire, they made many enemies in the establishment. The Roman Empire had come to accept adultery, pornography, homosexuality, incest, and pedophilia. And so Christians found many enemies in the culture. These new Christians weren't bowing down to the gods of the establishment, and so they had to go. To be a Christian, in many times, meant to be hated and persecuted. And there was no justice for those who sought to live in God's ways. So believe it or not, the cultural hardships of the early church were still far worse than they are today. You could argue that we're catching up real fast, but at the same time, it still cost more to be a Christian back then than it does today. But along these lines, because this is true, would you think that the New Testament especially would have maybe a thing or two to say about how to live in such a world? Do you think the authors of the New Testament who lived in such a hostile culture would, would have some timeless instruction for God's people? Well, indeed they do, and I want to share some of those timeless instructions with you this morning. So you can open your Bibles now to the book of 2 Timothy. It's the whole book, 2 Timothy. If you need to, grab a pew Bible, use your table of contents, but make your way to, to the book of 2 Timothy. And I want to give you this morning some encouraging and instructive lessons on how to live in a world that that seems like it's going mad. Now, I actually taught this lesson as a shorter Bible study at a men's breakfast a a while ago. So it might sound a tad familiar to some of you men, but at the same time, I wanted to expand this study and include it for the benefit of all. Why 2 Timothy, though? Well, the circumstances and the the content of 2 Timothy... They really speak to the challenges that Christians face today. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter during his second Roman imprisonment. Basically, at this point, he's living in a dark dungeon under nauseating conditions. Also, the end is near. This is Paul's final letter, and as he writes it, he knows that he's going to die soon. He will shortly be executed for preaching Christ. But before he goes, he wants to write one final letter To whom? To Timothy. Who was Timothy? Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, converted under Paul's preaching when Timothy was maybe a teenager. And later he joined Paul as a full-time missionary. And he went on to become Paul's right-hand man and most trusted partner in the ministry of the gospel. The thing about Timothy, though, is he was a bit scared. We can gather this from Paul's correspondence to Timothy in his many letters. 
Paul in scripture, he comes off as fearless. He was not afraid to preach, preach Christ any time, any place, no matter the consequences. He bore on his body the marks of Christ and, and, and that he suffered physically for Christ. But Timothy doesn't appear to be so bold. He seems a little more prone to to shrink back in the face of opposition. And this is why Paul has to tell Timothy many times to be strong, to be courageous, to stand firm in the truth. Timothy was faithful to the Lord and to the gospel. But I think he was maybe a little more like us. A streak of fear ran through him. This is that part of you that questions, well, Okay, what will, what will happen to me if I stand firm in the truth? Paul was about to be taken out of the way. The mantle was passing to Timothy. It was to be his job to strengthen and care for all the churches they planted. But for this work, Timothy needed to be strong. So in 2 Timothy especially, Paul gives this final charge to Timothy. And it's all about standing firm in the truth. And this is why I think 2 Timothy is so helpful today. For they really, in many respects, face the same cultural opposition, and but we need that same exhortation. How are we to live in a world that, that seems like it's going mad? Well, Paul's instructions in 2 Timothy, I think, are useful for the whole church, and we would do well to learn from them. And Let's do that now. More specifically, I want to highlight three responses to living in a world gone mad. Three responses to living in a world gone mad, uh, mad rather. And, and the first is to abandon the truth. To abandon the truth. I didn't say these are three right responses. The first true are notably wrong, but nonetheless, many in response to persecution and pressure, they abandon the truth. They fall away. They turn away. If you're in Second Timothy, look at chapter 1. Look at Verses 15 and and 16. He says down in verse 15, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turn away from me. Among them are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. When Paul was imprisoned again for preaching Christ, these other supposed leaders in the church they turned on him and abandoned him. They were ashamed of his chains because in reality they were ashamed of the gospel. And there are many Christians today who are making bold stands for the truth, but other Christians in other circles will will turn on them and shun them. And, And how is that different from really shunning the truth and being ashamed of the gospel? Some turn away from the truth, some fall away. Look at chapter 4, verse 9, verse 10. We'll be bouncing all around 2 Timothy this morning. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9 and 10. Now near the end, he says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here's a tragic example near the end. Demas was a partner with Paul in the work of the gospel. He's mentioned over in Colossians 4.14. He's with Paul, sending his greetings to the churches. He's, he's faithful at that point. But as the years went on and the heat started to turn up against these new Christians, people were losing relationships for Christ and property for Christ and their lives for Christ. 
Demas reckoned that was a little bit too much. That, that's a little too steep of a price. So he, he fled. He deserted. There have always been people like this. But suffice it to say, this is the wrong response. What do you gain when you forsake Christ? You gain peace and acceptance with the world. But in the scope of eternity, that's a bad deal. For Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? Paul made a a similar statement in 2 Timothy 2.12. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. Listen, when hardship comes, this is for sure the easier response. We, have, we all have this you know, fight or flight mechanism where, in most cases, it's just so much easier to, to turn, to run away, to, to take the easy way out, just to give up Christ, give up your beliefs, give up your convictions, give up your morals. And then the world won't hate you. You'll have peace with the world. They'll even welcome you in and welcome you on their side, and, and you'll be safe. You can live a nice, safe life. But such a response comes at the cost of your soul. You may gain friendship with the world, but that also comes with enmity with God. Like James says in James 4.4, 4, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's James 4.4. 4. There really can be no compromise here. For the faithful, for the true believer, this response is is obviously not an option. In fact, such a response merely demonstrates that one was never a good seed to begin with, that one never truly was with the Lord. Like Christ himself taught, Matthew 13, 20, the parable of the seeds and the sowers, he says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So first, unlike Demas, unlike Phygelus and Hermogenes, we must endure to the end. We must not fall away or abandon the truth. This is not a case where if you can't beat him, join him. In this case, to join the world is a far worse alternative. The first response we we cannot commit, and that is to abandon the truth. The same goes for the second response, and that is to soften the truth. To soften the truth. This is another wrong response. There are many in the church, and they want to retain their religion. They don't want to you know, deny the faith. They want to keep Jesus, and, and they, want, they still believe in Jesus. But open hostility with the world, that's, that's bad for business. They don't believe in a militant church, but in a, you know, a popular church, a, a prosperous church, a church that's accepted by the world. But that can only really be gained by altering the word. God's word has some sharp edges to it, and to a culture that is more and more turning against God's ways, If you want to be accepted by the world, you're going to have to grind down some of those sharp edges. And this actually was happening even in Paul's day. And so he warns. Chapter 4, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Even at the outset of the church, just the sound doctrine, the plain teaching of God's word was deemed too offensive. So it was exchanged for a more palatable, pleasing diet. And the result was... You have churches filled with goats who have no appetite for the pure, unadulterated preaching of God's word. Kind of sounds like some churches today. Come back to that thought, but look at 2 Timothy 2.16 now. 2.16, he says a little bit earlier, he says, Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying the resurrection has already taken place, and they have upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. You can stop there. In the context here, Paul is warning against entertaining Heresy. False teaching is not to be tolerated or explored, but to be cut out. It only leads to further ungodliness. And as a case in point, he brings up these two men, in verse 17, who went astray from the truth. In this case, they were claiming the resurrection had already taken place. Now you're probably thinking, what, what's up with that? What, is, what does that mean? Well, they denied a bodily resurrection, claiming only a spiritual resurrection which had already taken place. Most likely this was another example of of people who took Greek philosophy and tried to merge it with this new Christianity. And since their bodies would not be physically resurrected, it didn't matter what they did with their bodies. This is what the Epicureans taught. Therefore, they could could engage in, in all the sexual morality of the culture. So long as their spirits belong to the Lord, they're good to go. Remember, Christianity's morality was a stumbling block to the world, even back then. But these guys softened the truth so that basically you could still be a Christian and yet approve of all the immoralities of the culture. And so therefore, Paul warns against these people as false teachers with false teaching. But really, is this all that different from what's going on today? How many churches and popular preachers come out each year and change their position, change scripture, redefine morality to to fit the culture, to make friends with the culture. It's like every year a new popular preacher comes out and says, you know, actually on second thought, I've I've taken another look at the Greek, and it it turns out the Bible doesn't teach homosexuality as a sin, and it's all okay. And then the floodgates are opened. And so just last week, a university chaplain transitioning to become a woman became the first transgender minister ordained by the Methodist Church in the UK. I mean, forget what the Bible clearly says. The Bible, you can always reinterpret the Bible. But, you know, they don't want to be unpopular. They don't want people to leave their churches. They don't want people to think they're intolerant. They don't want to be persecuted. So they compromise. But like Paul says, such teaching will only lead to further ungodliness. And like Paul says, the Lord knows those who are his. 
And such people will be accepted by the world, but rejected by God. So these are two wrong responses to living in a world gone mad. And I understand many genuine Christians can be tempted to, to go down these roads. In fact, I bet some of you have at least, at least been tempted to, to soften or change, or at least not speak up about what you believe because of the pressure of the world. No one wants to be persecuted. No one wants to be hated. And it's just so much easier to, to give in or just, just stay silent. But this is where you have to decide, what do you really believe? And is it really true? Is God really the creator? Is Christ really the Lord and Savior? Is his death and resurrection really the only hope for a lost and dying world? Do you really, do you really believe all that? Do you believe the gospel? Are you ashamed of it? Ashamed of the gospel? Or are you willing to suffer for it? It's the ultimate test of a true disciple. But be strong and courageous. Remembering the Lord doesn't call us into uncharted territory. He went there first. Christ was first hated and ridiculed and mocked and rejected by the world. Persecuted even unto death. And we are merely sharing in his rejection. We're suffering because we share his name. We go by his name. And that's how it will always be. One way or another. But for those who are truly the Lord's, who truly name the name of the Lord, we have no choice. We're bound. He's our Lord, our Savior, our Master. What can we do? To whom shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. We, ha we have no choice. We must follow him. And we must endure to the end. And so for those who, who truly follow Christ, there's, there's only one response. There's only one real response. And that's number three, to stand firm in the truth. To stand firm in the truth. And like I said before, this, this really is the theme of 2 Timothy. Paul's major final thrust to Timothy before he's executed, passing on the mantle, stand firm in the truth. All the way back in chapter 1, let's go back. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Let me read a big chunk here. Follow along, 7 through 14. He says near the beginning, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Verse 13, retain the standard of sound words, which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Here at the beginning we have, first off, such a great reminder of the gospel itself, 
which is a major theme of 2 Timothy, whereby we're saved, not according to works, he says, but by God's grace in Christ, who abolished death and brought life to light through his death and resurrection. Then he grants to us forgiveness of sins and eternal life, just as it's free gift by our faith in Christ. This is, this is good news, but do you believe it? And then are you ashamed of it? He calls Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel. Functionally, I think a lot of people are, a lot of Christians are in practice. I mean, sure, in, in church, you openly confess your faith. Yeah, that, that's easy. But in a crowd of hostile unbelievers, are, are you ready to, to speak up for the gospel? Because, you know, the good news, to, to share the good news, it involves confronting the world with the bad news first. That they too, like us, they're, they're sinners. And there will be a judgment, a reckoning by a holy God. But they, then they need a Savior. Now, the good news is the Savior has come. The, the offer of life and forgiveness, it's right there. But they need a Savior. And a lot of people don't like to hear that. So will you back down or, or tone it down? I hope you don't, because like Timothy, you're not given a spirit of timidity. It means cowardice in verse 7. God didn't leave behind you the, the spirit of, of cowardice. You're given a spirit of power to stand firm in the truth. Therefore, Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but suffer for it according to God's power. Like if you just compromise, you're not going to suffer for it. He calls you to, to suffer for it. The same power that saved us, the same power that abolished death, is at work in us. So, verse 12, don't fear, don't be ashamed. Do you know in whom you believed? And are you likewise convinced that he is able to guard which you've entrusted to him, namely your eternal life, until that day? If, if so, then, then stand firm. Even if it means suffering for your faith. Even if it means, like, like Paul death. Your eternal life is still secure in Christ, so don't don't abandon the truth. Don't soften the truth. But verse 13, he says, retain the standard of sound words. He doesn't say change it to fit the culture. He says, retain the standard of sound words. He says, verse 14, guard the treasure. Don't, don't give it up. Don't, don't change it. Guard the treasure. It's treasure of truth entrusted to you by the Spirit. It's a pretty strong opening admonition. But that's what Timothy needed. That's what we need as well. Stand firm in the truth, even if it means suffering for it. Next, chapter 2, look at verse 1. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And why do you think Paul needs to, to keep telling Timothy this? It's because he sensed Timothy was being flustered by the pressures of the world. In the face of pressure and hostility, some people, they're like the ostrich. They just dig their head in the sand. They pretend it's, it's not bad out there. There's no problem. Everything's fine. Other people, they're like the deer. And at the first sound of trouble, they just run, run for the hills. But we're called to be like, like the mighty horse who charges headlong, fearlessly, even in the face of opposition. So be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, he says. Now look at verse 8. 
chapter 2. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. Again, the gospel comes up. It's a gospel of a risen Lord. Do you really believe Jesus rose from the dead? And if so, what do you really have to fear? Because, look, you will die someday, but in Christ you will rise as well. Paul remembered this. And therefore, Paul was not unwilling to suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal for the gospel. But have no fear. Even as Paul was imprisoned, the word of God was not imprisoned. And the gospel advanced despite his suffering. We saw that recently in Philippians, which we just finished. Remember when Paul first arrived in Philippi, he was beaten up and arrested just for preaching Christ. Yet as he endured and maintained the right response of standing firm in the truth, God intervened and the Philippian jailer was saved. God often designs the gospel to progress through our adversity. This was surely the case with the early church. As the Roman Empire turned up the persecution against these new Christians, thousands were eventually killed. But it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. For thousands more saw these people take their faith to the grave, and they were compelled to follow their Savior, that same Savior. And we've really been left behind for this mission to make disciples of all the nations, to, to bring them the, the good news of the gospel. It's not easy work, but embrace the work and the challenge and the hardship. Count the cost, knowing that you're not promised an easy road. You're, you're promised a cross to pick up to follow Christ. That's a symbol of suffering and shame and rejection by the world. But scripture, there's no two ways about it. It just paints a stark reality that the life, the road of a disciple, if you're following Jesus, where do you think he was going with his cross when he says, follow me, pick up your cross and follow me? He's going to the place of suffering, the place of death, the place of rejection, the place of scorn and mock and ridicule. But a true disciple will, will follow nonetheless. And you know, I, I don't want you to be the ostrich who just pretends that there's, there's nothing there's no problem or it's, everything's okay. You have to realize, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Not easy times, difficult times. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. The phrase last days here really refers to the whole age before Christ comes. And these sins have characterized the entire age 
But there's a sense in Scripture in which man's depravity escalates more and more in the time before Christ comes. And whether that's soon or not, our society has surely seen an explosion in these sins of the self. Look, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How does that not define our culture to the T? But also keep in mind, these people here claim to be religious, right? Paul says they hold to a form of godliness, an outward form of godliness. That they, they, They're spiritual people, even religious people. Not every unbeliever denies God's existence. Rather, most people these days, and, and really always, they pull God down from heaven, bring him to earth, reshape him into their own image so that they have a God who approves of all of their doings, their lifestyle, everything they do. They've just made a God in their own image. But they don't know, Paul says, the true God. They don't know his power. And so he says, beware such people, avoid such people. Like John says, if we say we have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. First John 1, 6. Such people, they're still living in the darkness. And it becomes all the more evident in how they respond and treat those who are truly walking in the light. They, they turn on them. Look at verse 10. He says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And sadly, things will only get worse. And before Christ returns, that the evil in man will proceed from bad to to worse, he says. And imposters will rise. The, the result will be what? Just more suffering for God's people. Those who desire to live godly, not just a form of godliness, but those who are actually living godly in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. It's a promise. Verse 12, read it yourself. Scripture says we will be hated by the world and ostracized. The darkness hates the light and tries to snuff it out, and it will only get worse before Christ comes. But why do you think we're warned of this in advance by Scripture in so many places, not just 2 Timothy, that we can have the right expectations and that we can have the right response? And that right response is to, like Paul tells Timothy, just just press on, keep going, keep following the way. It's the way of Paul, he says. It's the way of the Lord. The way marked by, verse 10, faith and perseverance. That way is also marked by, verse 11, persecutions and sufferings. But you just keep following the narrow way. Paul suffered much because of his faith in Christ, but he endured. We're called to do the same. And thankfully, God has equipped us to endure. God has given us what we need to withstand such attacks and to wage war without stumbling and recognize there, there's a war going on. Since the beginning, there, there's been a truth war raging on. 
where Satan has moved the world to hurl lies against God and, and his people. And so he warns against those who are deceiving and being deceived. Impostors. They've always been around. Instead, we are called to equip ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. And so it's no wonder that Paul says in the very next verse, look at verse 14 of chapter 3, right after this warning, he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here's that, that famous passage on the inspiration of scripture. Really, though, it's, it's about the sufficiency of scripture. And God, God's word gives us all we need for life and godliness. But notice also, this passage comes in the context of suffering and persecution. Most don't pick up on that. But these words, they come in a context of difficult times when the church is surrounded by false teachers and false believers who hold to a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. They teach falsehood. They tolerate immorality. Kind of sounds like today. And so all the more so, like Timothy, we need what? We need God's word to hold on to the truth of God's word. It's like a lighthouse cutting through the fog. And you need to follow closely the light that you don't dash upon the rocks of error and compromise. And this is why the church today does not need something new. We don't need new truth or fresh revisions of what God has said. What does he tell Timothy? Continue in the things you've learned. Continue in the things you've learned. God's word is inspired. It is sufficient. Well, you think you can improve upon it? Like it needs a revision to suit the culture? No, it's timeless and inspired. Sadly, though, that's the impression you get from many churches. That it's, it's not you know, it's not really relevant for today. Yeah, you know, I, you know, the early church may have gathered to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, that was fine back then, but, you know, today is a modern world. It doesn't quite cut it in today's entertainment-driven world. We need something more catchy, a little more palatable, more appealing to the masses. And maybe, just maybe, this is why Paul says next, chapter 4, verse 1, the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's a serious charge, right? He's charging Timothy to, as a preacher. Woe to those preachers who fail what he's about to say. Listen to this charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside toward myths. But you 
be sober in all things, endure hardship to the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Again, these are verses we often quote about preaching, but understand they come in the context of difficult times. When times get tough and the darkness grows, all the more so we need to turn to God's word. And there's a special value in that word preached. Notice the function of the preached word. It doesn't say to entertain. It says reprove, rebuke, exhort, and instruct. These are things we all need all the time. Why? Because the way is narrow and the gate is small that leads to life. And the world is constantly trying to to push us off course. But God's word is a lamp unto our feet and it guides us and corrects us and keeps us on that narrow way. Sometimes it even rebukes us and corrects us when we stray. And that's a good thing. We need that. Even after coming to Christ, we're forgiven, but we're not completely perfected. We're given the spirit, but we still have the sinful flesh. We're on the narrow path, but we're still sinners. And so we still need God's word to rebuke us and correct us and get us back on track. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Some churches today, like we discussed before, they've, they've gone down the road of softening the truth. And why? Because, you know, people, it's, it's true, people don't like to be poked and prodded and cut open by the preaching of the Word of God. It, it exposes their sin. It's uncomfortable. It, it hurts. It's, it's awkward. It's not popular. So instead of cutting people open with the Word to expose their sin, they just, you know, give them a, a massage. Make them feel good, leave all happy. But that's like a doctor saying, hey, you've got a tumor, but I don't want to do surgery because I don't want to hurt you. No, I think I'll take the surgery because I realize I need to be harmed before I'm healed, and it's for my good. It's for my benefit. And that's what God's word does. In love, it cuts us open, bears us open the thoughts and intentions of our heart, exposes our hidden sins for the better that we can be healed, that we can be restored as we repent and are renewed before God in truth. We can be made more like Christ. The preaching of the word is like spiritual surgery. It's designed to heal and to mend broken hearts. Realize this is why we preach a Bible sermon every Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. I hope you know why that is. It's not just like a ritual or something we do. It's like our tradition or we're just kind of old and dodgy. Preachers, you know, our preachers just religious motivational speakers or entertainers. This is why we don't preach current events. It's not comedy hour. If you want entertainment, go watch the movies. Our culture has so much entertainment. You can just get enough in the world. I think you'll be okay without an hour of entertainment at church, right? But where else can you go these days to hear God's word heralded for an hour. And we preach to bring the conviction of God's truth to bear on the soul that all might be more conformed to the image of Christ. And that conviction is a powerful force. That conviction changes lives. But all too many churches today, they sacrifice conviction for entertainment. 
because they've sacrificed spiritual growth for numerical growth. No, but individually and corporately, may we rightly respond to the the maddening world we live in, and that's by standing firm in the truth. Don't abandon it. Don't soften it. Just stand firm in it. And you do this yourself. You feed yourself your daily bread of reading God's word, studying the scriptures, worshiping in the word. And do this corporately, coming together to fill your mind with the truth and good preaching. You know, people like to go to fancy restaurants because although they can cook, they can't quite prepare a meal like that. It takes, you know, an experienced chef to prepare a really nice meal for them. And likewise, it's the calling of preachers to feed God's people a special serving of the word that they might grow. And so you make sure that even throughout the week, you're feeding yourself a steady appetite of biblical preaching. This is how you will not abandon the truth or soften the truth, but stand firm in it. This is a a mad world. It is getting madder, but we have God's grace and strength in our hands. You need to be strong and courageous, but you can only do that if you hold on to the standard of sound words, guard the treasure entrusted to you, and continue in the things you've learned, like Paul told Timothy. The day will come. Scripture even warns us when more and more Christians, they will fall away from the truth. They've been in ear-tickling churches their whole lives. They have no firm foundation. Many are not even converted. And when the temperature rises, they will fall away. But even if it feels like there's, there's none left, you, you just stand firm in the truth. As for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord. Come what may, whatever the consequences, we'll serve the Lord. This was Paul's testimony. Make it true for you and your household as well. So that you can say with Paul, chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. may not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said that knowing he was about to die, yet it's still true. So do you believe that? Then stand firm in the truth. This is how you respond to a world gone mad. Let's pray. Our great God and and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray this morning you give us all a dose of strength and courage. Our world has, our country especially, has seen a change in the past decade, turning toward what your word describes as darkness. And the pressure is mounting against many to compromise, to take the easy road of compromise. And, but, but that requires forsaking you and your ways. And we cannot. You've given us good news that Christ came to, to pay for such sins, to die for all sin. We're all sinners before you, Lord. All of us deserving of judgment before a perfectly holy God. Yet in this great love you sent Christ to die in our place, to forgive us our sins, to give us new and eternal life. 
If only the world knew your love. And we must stand for that truth and stand for your love. But we can't compromise that love or change what that true love is. A love that does not accept and and tolerate sin, but exposes it in love to be healed, to be forgiven. that, that, That those in the world can know the peace and the joy and the happiness that we have in Christ. Having received new life by grace, knowing we were sinners lost and condemned, yet now we're found and saved. Give us the boldness, Lord, to, to stand firm in this truth, to show great compassion and love toward the world. You call us to even love our enemies. We, we will not respond with hatred, but may we show the ultimate love, which is to give that gospel, even to suffer for it, not be ashamed of it, but that all might know and hear and believe in Christ the Son. Strengthen us as we depart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.